All right, we are continuing together and soon to wind up our study in the doctrine of um, the covenants um, in terms of the covenant of of David or the so-called Davidic covenant. And we saw the establishment of that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. We saw how it was fulfilled in Solomon and then in the descendants from Solomon and ultimately then how it's fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we said there were three fundamental elements to the Davidic covenant. Number one is that God would establish David's throne forever. Number two, that David's son would be in a unique way, the son of God. And number three, that that son would build God a house. And so we see this ultimately fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as we open the New Testament, what do we find? We find Jesus Christ being declared to be the son of David. And so we see this tremendous emphasis of Jesus being the son of David throughout the New Testament in many, many passages. And so our memory verse today that we looked at, Uh, where it says of Jesus that he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. So right in that passage, Jesus is declared to be the son of God. He's declared to sit on the throne of David, and he's declared to have a, a, a reign and a kingdom that will continue to grow and grow until there's no end. And so we then looked at a number of other passages in the New Testament, uh, in particular Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13, both of which uh, deal extensively with the relationship between David and Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to return to those passages today and talk about them a little bit more. So let's turn please to Acts chapter 2. And I want to cement these into your mind um, in terms of their Old Testament context, Acts chapter 2. And uh, we'll start out at verse 22. Peter is preaching his Pentecost Day sermon. Jesus, of course, has lived his life and died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. And uh, now he sent the Holy Spirit and uh, the people spoke in tongues and a big crowd gathered and Peter's preaching to them. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken him by wicked hands of crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And now he starts to introduce David into his sermon, okay? He says, for David speaks concerning him. So David is talking concerning Jesus Christ, Peter says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to quote Psalm 16. Now, I want you to keep your hand here in Acts 2, and I want to turn back to Acts, uh, to, to Psalm 16, okay? So we've turned back to the book of Psalms. And you come to the 16th Psalm. Verse 
And we'll start reading together at verse 8. In verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And the word hell there could also be translated the grave. Now, uh, and I'll just read the last verse. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay? So what we have here is David saying that God will not leave uh, his body in the grave to suffer corruption. Now the question is, did that happen to David? Was his body left in the grave to see corruption or not? And on the basis of that point, Turn back to Acts chapter 2. Peter makes his argument. In Acts chapter 2, verse 25, For David speaks concerning him, that is Jesus, and now he quotes the text I just read to you, Psalm 16, 8 to 11. He says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also shall my flesh rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. So he just quoted the, the, the Psalm 16 that I read to you. Okay, And now he makes his argument. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher, his grave, is with us to this day. So his flesh has seen corruption. So clearly, when David was talking in Psalm 16, he couldn't have been talking about himself because what is said regarding the person addressed in Psalm 16 wasn't true of David. All right? He says, um, therefore, verse 30, Being a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's the oath sworn promise of the Davidic covenant, that of the fruit of his loins, according to his flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So ultimately, it was Christ who was going to sit on the throne of David forever, and he was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Okay, Verse 31, he seeing this beforehand is the idea looking down through the corridors of history with prophetic insight and being able to see it. He's seen this beforehand, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, Christ's soul, was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And it says, this Jesus hath God raised up. So the reason why Jesus was resurrected from the grave after only three days, and the reason why his body didn't see any corruption is in fulfillment of the promises of the Davidic covenant. And so in the Davidic covenant, we have the foundation for the resurrection of Christ. And it was when he was resurrected, as we will see, that he was actually placed on the throne of David. So it goes on to say, verse 32, this Jesus is God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, 
therefore being the right by the right hand of God exalted. Now, do you remember anything about the right hand of God in Psalm 16? Okay, remember the very last verse? It says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when Jesus was resurrected, he ascended. He sat at the right hand of the Father where there is fullness of joy. At the right hand of the Father where there are pleasures forevermore. So that whole second half of Psalm 16 is talking about Jesus, his death, his burial, his not seeing corruption because of his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his seating at the right hand of the Father. It's all there in Psalm 16. And Peter takes that psalm and he applies it specifically to the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. Okay? Verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear. So when we have a king sitting on the throne, he distributes blessings to his people, okay? And uh, when Jesus ascended to his throne, he also poured out his blessings on his people, namely the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is from the enthroned David, the enthroned son of David, sitting on the throne of David, pouring out his kingly blessings upon his people. Verse 34, for David has not ascended into the heavens, but he, David, says himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now that's a quote out of Psalm 110. So let's turn back to Psalm 110. Okay, let's keep your hand here in Acts 2. Go back to Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is an exceedingly important passage. And its importance is indicated by the fact that it's quoted about 10 times in the New Testament. Over and over and over again with reference to Jesus Christ. Various points biblical authors are making about Christ. They will quote Psalm 110, uh, various verses in it. So in Psalm 110... David is speaking here and he says, the Lord. Who's that? Well, that's God, the Father. Said unto my Lord, who's that? Well, that's Jesus Christ. So David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So this is speaking, of course, of the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And what is the Father doing now? He is subduing all of Jesus' enemies uh, under his authority. And so right now there is a comprehensive conquering of all of the enemies of Christ uh, and the subduing of them so that when Jesus comes back, the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. So, <clears throat> verse 34 of Acts 2, For David has not ascended into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, if you look back at Psalm 110, Verse 1, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Then the next verse says, 
the Lord shall send the rod out of rod of thy strength out of Zion. Uh, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And the day of his power is the day of his ascension to the throne in which he's going to use the rod to rule his enemies and to bring them into subjection under his feet. So verse 36 of Acts 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And his lordship um, is, is predicated upon the fact that he is uh, the king. He's sitting on the throne. He is Lord over the kingdom of David. So what we have here is a quotation of Psalm 16 and a quotation of Psalm 110. And David saying things and saying things that can't possibly be true about himself because they didn't work out that way in history. And so what, Paul, uh, what Peter does is he said, well, these things weren't true of David. They're true of Jesus, who is the son of David. Okay. So that's the argument that's made. And Peter directly declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And as a result of the Davidic covenant, he was resurrected and he was enthroned at the right hand of the father uh, ascended into heaven. All right. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 13, the book of Acts, the 13th chapter. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 13, um, we'll start out at uh, verse 26, Acts 13, 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. So Paul's preaching here, and he's starting out his message. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. You know, it's amazing how many people hear the scriptures read every Sabbath day and don't have a clue as to what they mean. And that's what he's saying about the Jews. Every Sabbath day, they heard the prophets read to them, but they knew them not. They that dwell at Jerusalem, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They heard him, but they didn't know those voices. They didn't comprehend him. So they fulfilled those in condemning him. <clears throat> Verse 28, and though they found no cause of death in him, no legitimate cause, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain, even though he was not guilty of the charges. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them, which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, for as witnesses to the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled the same to us their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again. So he's, he's telling us God made a promise to the fathers that he was going to raise Jesus again. And so what's the promise that he made? Well, the promise he made is here in Psalm 2. 
As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he saith on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now he's going to quote several passages here, and we're going to go back through each of those, all right? Verse 35, for, for he also said in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And we're familiar with that, that Psalm 16 that we just read. And so he quotes these three passages. He quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Psalm 55, and he quotes Psalm um, uh, 16. Huh? Did I say Isaiah, Isaiah 55? Is that what I said? Isaiah 53? Well, I was wrong. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay, he quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Isaiah 55, and he quotes Psalm 16. Did I get it right that time? Good, thank you. Um, sometimes my brain gets about six sentences ahead of my mouth. <clears throat> okay, so let's turn to Psalm 2 and see the argument there. The book of Psalms, the second psalm. Okay, so I'm going to, you're looking at the second psalm, right? But I'm going to read to you out of Acts 13 again. God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Okay, now let's look at Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. So here we have the, the mass of humanity on the earth saying, let's kick God off of his throne. Let's be gods ourselves. Let's determine for ourselves how we want to live and what we think is right and wrong. And let us break the constricting bands of God's law and God's authority off of ourselves. Now, what is God's response to this rebellion of his creation against his authority and against his laws? Verse 8, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Anybody who thinks they can rebel against God and succeed, uh, the joke's on them. Because you don't get in a war with God and win. It just doesn't happen. So how's God going to uh, deal with this rebellion? Verse 5. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. <clears throat> so God's going to respond. He's going to bring punishment to bear on them. And God says now in verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth, right? Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. The kings and the rulers of the earth think they rule the earth. And God says, no, I have a king. And my king is going to rule. Now the question is, who's the king? Well, verse seven, I will declare the decree. This is the king speaking. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, one of the promises of the Davidic covenant is that, that the son of David would also be the son of God in a special way, right? And so Psalm 2 really ties into the Davidic covenant from that angle, is that God said, your throne will be forever, your son will be my son in a special way, and he will build me a house. Those are the three promises, right? So here, God says, uh, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, this begetting that's spoken of here is not the virgin birth, okay? That's not a reference to this day where you conceived in the womb of Mary. Rather, this conception that is spoken of here is his conception to resurrection life. Because this verse in Acts 13 is applied to the resurrection, not to the um, immaculate conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, right? So this beginning was a beginning of Jesus back to life and the exaltation of him to the throne of David and it's as he is begotten to resurrected life and exalted to the throne of David, from that position then, he begins to defeat and conquer these rulers that are wanting to cast off God's control and authority. Next verse. Verse 8, God the Father says to his son, whom he has begotten back to life from the dead and is placed upon the throne of David. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And so when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat on the throne of David, um, he asked God, give me the kingdoms of this world as my kingdoms. And God said, they're all yours. And that's why Jesus could say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Who gave it to him? God the Father. Why did he give it to him? At, at God the Son's request. As the enthroned son of David, sitting on David's throne, he says to the Father, give me the heathen for mine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for my possession. And God gave it to him. Verse 9. God says, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Christ is going to exercise absolute authority over the kingdoms of this earth to the point that they will be unable to resist his power. Remember in Psalm 10, it says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And what is the day of his power? It's when he is seated on, on the right hand of the father. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the point is, is that our king is on the throne. He's ruling. He has a rod of iron in his hand. He's already been given all the peoples of the world and all the kingdom of the world to rule as he sees fit. And we're worried about what's going to happen in the future with what Obama's going to do or what the Muslims are going to do or what Russia's going to do. We don't have to worry about that. Our king is the king of kings. And his kingdom rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he is the Lord of all the lords. And he rules them with his rod. Now here's the counsel, verse 10. 
Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth, that are saying, let us break God's bands from us. Let us cast God's cords away from us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Stop casting off God's bands and cords. Stop casting off his authority. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. And the idea there is to bow down and kiss his feet in obeisance and in submission. Kiss the son's feet is the idea in obeisance and submission, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. You don't want to make Jesus mad by rebelling against him. He has a rod of iron in his hand. He'll use it on you. He says, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so the issue is, are you going to rebel against the king or are you going to put your trust in the king? And this is the stupidity, people, of trying to receive Jesus as Savior without receiving him as Lord. Can you see what a joke that is? Jesus is Lord. He's sitting on the throne of David, uh, ruling the kingdoms of the earth, and I'm going to accept him as Savior, but not as Lord. Yeah, right. When you receive Christ, you receive an enthroned Christ. And that means that you need to kiss his feet in submission and in obedience. You need to put your trust in him. You need to follow his will and do his ways. And if so, then all of the blessings of the kingdom come on you. And uh, you're under the rule of the righteous king who will bless you. Now back to Acts 13. Acts 13, it says in verse 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So Psalm 2 is a declaration of the promise of the resurrection of Christ. All right? Verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he saith on this wise, I will give unto you the sure mercies of David. Now, that's in Isaiah 53, so let's turn there. Keep your hand here. We'll turn to Isaiah 53. Did I say Isaiah 53? I meant Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and verse 3. Change the verse for the chapter. Isaiah 55. In verse 3, um, we'll start out at verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. So there's the free and open invitation of the gospel. Come for forgiveness, come for cleansing, 
come for refreshment, uh, come for that which will um, be a true and genuine blessing to you. Verse 3, incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live. Now notice, here's our phrase, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people of a leader and a commander to the people. So, turn back to Acts 13. Verse 34, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he says on this wise, I will give unto you the sure mercies of David. So this promise of the sure mercies of David was given to Jesus Christ. And what was the sure mercy of David? The sure mercy of David is that he wouldn't stay in the grave, that he wouldn't see corruption that he would sit at the right hand of the Father where there are pleasures forevermore. Those were the sure mercies of David. And so he, he, in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3, this everlasting covenant is the new covenant. And so the new covenant is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Remember we said the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, the new covenant is also a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in terms of the promises in that covenant, not only to us, but also to Jesus Christ that God made with him. All right. Now back to Acts chapter 13, verse 36. For David, pardon me, verse 35. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There's Psalm 16. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Now, it's interesting here that Paul uses exactly the same argument in his sermon that Peter used in his. The exact same argument. David's in the grave and his body's rotted. And so, therefore, this passage has to refer to Jesus Christ. Verse 37, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So the three arguments he uses for the resurrection of Christ are Psalm 2, Isaiah 55 and verse 3, and Psalm 16. And from those three Psalms, all of which are tied to the Davidic covenant, he says on the basis of that covenant and the promises made to David, on that basis, Jesus rose from the grave. On that basis, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And on that basis, he is going to rule the nations and defeat and conquer all of his enemies all through and on the basis of the promises made to uh, David. Now, as a result of, of this covenantal theology and this fulfillment of these covenant promises, you see constant references in the Bible, in the New Testament, to Jesus being the son of David. Uh, So, for example, in John 1 and verse 49, when uh, um, Nathanael comes to to Jesus, and remember Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, you know, before um, you you even knew I was here. Uh, Nathanael says, Thou art the Son of God, Thou art the King of Israel. And he recognizes that the Messiah is going to be the King of Israel. He's going to be the fulfillment of um, the, the Davidic covenant. 
Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, and once again, who is Jesus? He's the double fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Both of them are fulfilled in the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace, also called the new covenant. Okay. Um, let's turn to Romans chapter 4. And uh, we'll wind up here. Book of Romans, the fourth. Pardon me, chapter 1 and verse 4. I keep getting my chapters and verses mixed up. Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll start reading at verse 1. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Wow, I wonder what prophets those are. I wonder what passages those are. Verse 3, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so here what is said is that Jesus is the Son of David and he's the Son of God. So his humanity, he got from David and thus inherited all of those promises given to David. And of course, his deity he received, didn't receive, but he's always had uh, as the son of God, the eternal preexistent son of God. Um, and that was declared to be the case uh, with power according to the spirit of holiness and by the resurrection from the dead. So his resurrection from the dead demonstrates his deity his resurrection from the dead also demonstrates his fulfillment of the Davidic promise. So the point is, is that um, as, as you go through passages and you see that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, why was he born there? He needed to be born in the city of the king. And um, so um, these are our wonderful promises. Now, next time we'll talk about the final way in which Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, and that's by building God a temple. And what temple is Jesus building? Solomon built a temple, right? As, as the son of David and, and in a unique way, the son of God, not with deity, but a very special son of God, uh, given uh, God's wisdom. Uh, and he built a physical temple. Well, Jesus is building a spiritual temple, the church. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about how that flows out into eschatology <clears throat> and why the church... Uh, cannot fail. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It's going to spread um, like a, a little leaven in a lump of, of, of uh, dough, and it's going to um, be like a mustard seed, which is the tiniest of all seeds, and it grows to fill um, the whole earth. And, and, and all those passages that talk about the growth of the kingdom uh, and the growth of the temple that Jesus is building. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for <clears throat> the way uh, our Lord Jesus is the son of David sitting upon the throne of David, ruling the eternal kingdom of David forever and ever. Thank you, Father, that he has a rod of iron in his hand. And therefore, we need not fear what the nations do. The heathen rage and the nations rage and the rulers rage. And yet Christ has them all under his control. And so, Father, when we see evil legislation passed, when we see wicked men rise to power, when we see uh, evil judges pervert uh, truth and righteousness, uh, thank you that our Savior 
has all of those people under the rod of his authority. And he calls upon them with patience to bow. But when the day comes that his patience runs out, for those who have not bowed before him, he shall uh, destroy them with a rod of iron. He will cast them into hell. He will conquer them and defeat them forever. Thank you that the coming day in which the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, uh, will be manifested. Until then, Father, help us to be patient and help us to bow in our personal lives before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.